You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, we've got Josh Greenberg from Gates Asabo Lodge. Today, Josh gives us his three biggest tips on catching uh, big brown trout on the surface. These are three awesome tips that you don't want to miss today. Plus, we discover how to analyze a rise form of a trout, find out which are the big fish, and we also find out why you should fish like you don't have a camera. Josh has a great lodge and fly shop on one of the most famous rivers in the country. We're going to talk about the hex hatch. Uh, we're going to talk about the Hendrickson's, all the hatches uh, throughout the year. Plus the best time to fish ants and the months that you might not be thinking about that might not be on your radar for the Asapo. Here we go. Josh Greenberg from GatesLodge.com. How you doing, Josh? Doing well, Dave. Yeah, thanks for thanks for doing this. It's uh, we've been putting this together for a little while, so we're going to talk about a uh, another place in uh, in Michigan, which there's a lot going on in Michigan. It seems like uh, you know they're not only trout fishing but everything else. So we're going to talk about the uh, the Gates Lodge, uh, the Asable River, and let's straight up. Uh, that's always a uh, for some people a uh, a, <laughs> a point of uh, pronunciation. So is it it's Asable versus Asable, right? Yeah, you're saying it perfect. Okay, Asable. So, so you've got the Asable uh, over in New York, but Asable is the is the big river in in Michigan and really around the world. I think a, or a lot of people have heard about this river. So we're going to dig deep into that fishing, what you have there. But before we get there, let's take it back to fly fishing. How you first got into it? What's your first memory? I started fishing at a very young age, uh, and I fish for everything. And, and to be honest, I still do. Um, I like all kinds of fishing. In fact, I was out spin fishing with my son yesterday because it's so warm out. Oh, nice. We can, we can still get some fishing in. But I started in Ohio, southern Ohio, and I started fishing farm ponds. And my dad and I would drive all over the place, hunting out farm ponds, asking permission, you know, running in there with the latest uh, in fisherman uh, technique and, and, and catching bass. Um, and every farm pond seemed magical when I was three, four, five years old. But my dad, my dad has a special place for fly fishing. Cause when you're in Ohio, uh, especially back then before YouTube and everything brought it closer to you, trout were so exotic. They needed perfectly clear water. We didn't have perfectly clear water. And so my first experiences were in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and North Carolina fishing mountain streams. And I can still remember my first trout on the fly. I was about five years old. And from there, I, my life kind of split. I had my Ohio fishing, which was done with spin gear. And uh, I had our trout fishing, which occurred on summer vacations. Both my parents are retired teachers. So we used to travel by car everywhere. I've been to 49 states by car. Wow. And it was huge summer trips. Um, none of us, none of the Greenbergs like to fly. 
And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, um, so the Smokies became out West. And then once I tasted out West, I had to be there every summer. So lots of fishing out West. Uh, but it was when I was in my early teens that I first saw the Asable. And I thought, you know, that I was a pretty good fly fisher. And I came here and I just couldn't catch a thing. And that was the sort of challenge that I, I guess I needed. And, and honestly, I've never left. It, once I, once I got humbled here, but in, in going to the fly shops and talking to people as a kid, they were having success on big fish and, and I had to figure it out. And it, it took longer than I like to admit, but eventually I, I, um, I at least figured out how to catch those fish. Right. That's awesome. And you took it to the extreme level eventually by buying uh, uh, everything, shop, lodge, you got the whole things there. So, um, you know, Ohio is, it, it's interesting. I love hearing about this because we were just up in Ohio on kind of the, the South shore of Lake Erie chasing steelhead and, and kind of all of that. But talk about where those farm ponds on where you're at Southern Ohio, what, what's the nearest uh, city where you live and all that. So, I grew up in Oxford, Ohio, which is by the Indiana border and about an hour from Cincinnati. So we're, we're a college town where I grew up, Miami of Ohio. My dad um, is a retired professor there, but we're surrounded by cornfields. And, and, and so they were farm ponds and each one was different. That's like one of the coolest things about it is just you, you get to, to know the ponds um, individually. And, you know, this is the pond where you can see the fish. This is the pond that's always dirty, but fish as well. And, and this one has flathead catfish, you know, it's that kind of thing. So, so that, that was, uh, the dominant force of my, my young life in Ohio fishing. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Oxford is right on the border and yeah, and you're not too far from Cincinnati. So it's probably not too far of a drive. Uh, what take you a few hours to drive up to kind of Buffalo, something like that. Uh, we're the other side. So, oh, yeah. 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 So we're, um, it, it's pretty close. We're kind of like in the middle, like two hours from Columbus and whatnot. Um, you know, my growing up, we called it the armpit of America, but you know, <laughs> it's not so bad to go back and visit it now. <laughs> no, no. I have some good stuff. So, so what is it on? So Michigan is a different deal. I mean, there's a lot going on up there. It seems like, um, I mean, what is maybe describe that the Asable? Why, when you first went up there, did you feel like, you know, were you so blown away versus everywhere else you had been? You know, I think it's the mystery. I think it's the element of mystery. The Asables, um, you know, itself, it's at least two different rivers, even if you're standing in the same spot and you don't move. In the daytime, it's it's crystal clear for the most part and, and pretty slow. And it's hard to approach for that reason, but it's full of little trout. You know, we have a great wild trout fishery. We don't stock the vast majority of the river. So you sit there and you think you know it. And in the day, I guess you do. I mean, you're, you're catching little trout and you're having a good time. And then at dusk, all these mayflies come out and the big fish, if you leave the river alone, don't spook them. The big fish come out and, and um, at last light, you're casting at a fish. You had no idea where it came from. It just showed up it's, and, and your heart's racing. And uh, I, think, I think that that level of it being different all the time more than other rivers I've met is what drives me. And I, I, I mean, I'm still driven. I'm 44 years old and, and especially the, the, the fishing in, in May, I could move anywhere else on earth or be anywhere at any one time. I don't think I would trade the Asable in May, even now. I, I don't think there's anything that 
is more alluring. If I could say, okay, there's 12 months a year. You can be anywhere you want any of those months, but you got to pick one. I, I think I might pick the Asable in May. <laughs> right. Right. And what, and what's going on in May. That's so that that's kind of getting you fired up. You, you just get a huge, we, we call it a bug, like a bug chowder, like just different mayflies, different caddis. You got your stones, any one of which could be the star of the particular night you're out fishing. And at dusk, you'll get multiple things happening at once and you'll have a 30 minute window where these big fish come out um, and feed usually at a, a, you know, in some kind of flat water, be it a tail out or just a long, slow stretch of river. And you got to do everything right. Like a perfect night in May, I would make hopefully like one or two casts, catch a big fish, have a beer on the tailgate and, and call it good. Um, you're not out there ripping your, your fish, you're, right. you're hunting, you're hunting the whole time. Wow. Wow. So you're, you're hunting and looking for kind of that one fish that, uh, uh, what are you looking for when you're hunting and trying to find that, that one fish or that big fish? It's that big, slow, deliberate rise. And, and the telltale is the wake that they push in front of the rise. So, um, you know, like a little bow wave, that, that's what I measure them by. And I've, trust me, I've made mistakes. I, mean, I once spent like an hour fishing to what turned to, turned out to be a 10 inch brook trout. I just couldn't get it out of my mind that it wasn't a big fish acting goofy. It was, you know, still a 10 inch brook trout. I don't know, but right. it wasn't, wasn't what was in my head when I was casting at it. Right. That's awesome. So there are a lot of the Asabo. So one of the things that it has is, is big fish. That's the thing. And are we talking uh, brown trouts or brown trout as well? Or what are the species there? Uh, we have brown brook and rainbow. In May, we're generally targeting uh, big browns. Yeah, big browns. Yeah. Every adventure on the water starts with a single cast. At Jackson Hole Fly Company, that first cast begins with us. From their thoughtfully designed rods and reels to intricate detail of over 1,000 meticulously hand-tied fly patterns, they embed their story of dedication and their commitment to quality in every product they carry. Shop for fly fishing gear where quality meets affordability and exceptional craftsmanship doesn't come with a hefty price tag. Arm yourself with gear that doesn't support your passion, but amplifies it. Fly fishing begins here. Shop now at jacksonholeflycompany.com. And so that's it. So you have that. So you got some big browns there. And and then what is the, so if you were there in May, what does that look like? Are you pretty much on the surface trying to get these to a dry fly? That's the ultimate thing in the evening? Yeah. Yeah. And I, the ensemble is all about context. So I'm also very happy catching a bunch of smaller fish during the day. So we'll usually wake up with a, with a remnant Hendrickson spinnerfall and then have, you know, black caddis hatch right around noon. And that carries us through to whatever else little mayfly is going to trickle off in the afternoon, pause for dinner and then go look for spinners. Uh, so the spinner falls, the main event. Um, it's also worth noting, and I'm sure if anyone who fishes the Asable is listening, they'll say, what about the days when nothing happens in May? Those happen too. Um, <laughs> it seems like every three or four days in May, you hit a real winner. And between then, you have degrees off of that, you know, sometimes being where it's, you know, high of 42 degrees and nothing happens. Right, 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 right. What, what is, is there a certain temperature that you know, of, of kind of that time of year that makes it perfect water temperature or just conditions. It seems like if you're, I, I care less about the water. Um, if only because it's going to do what it's going to do, but what I'm looking for in the evening, um, the first half of May is for the air temperature to fall past 60 degrees at about nine thirty, 
that seems to be the temperature where the spinners will definitely hit the water. If that's going to happen and it's a beautiful evening, things are probably going to be pretty good. Gotcha. That's right, 930, because it's going to be getting dark probably, what, uh, by 1030 there or something like that? So you're fishing. Yeah, or, yeah. about 10 o'clock that time of year. Yeah. Um, and as long as I know that temperature's dropping, you know, they'll, they'll start hitting the water as it falls from 65 to 64, 64 to 63, and then the bugs are going to be hitting the water. My general rule of thumb for Hendrickson spinners is if you get to the river at 8 and you don't already see a few Hendrickson spinners on the water, it's probably not going to happen because they – they they have that you need that temperature to just barely be warm enough. If if it sounds fickle, it's because it is. My ability to have my heart broken is tempered by the fact that I live here. So I'll just try again tomorrow. So I sympathize with other people who are here for three days and I know it's frustrating, but it's the part I do love about the ensemble is that it will break your heart repeatedly. Yep. I mean, that's part of one of the reasons why it's probably famous is that it's not easy, right? It's a lot of these ones you hear about around the country are are kind of the toughest ones, but there are, there is a chance. I mean, that's a cool thing, right? There's always a chance of that fish of a lifetime. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is great. You have a couple of, I think I've been noticing this kind of on social, but some signs out front of the lodge that say kind of little, um, little one liners. Oh yeah. Is that something, is that something you've been doing for a while or, or talk about that? Because it seems like I'm not sure. Are you having to get up there and change the lettering physically <laughs> up there? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a rite of passage. So I, I had nothing to do with starting that. Um, my, my old boss, Rusty, who passed away, he was famous for his signs and, and, and uh, some of them pretty racy. And, and so it's just something we carry on. So a, as you get older, you know, you come up with the signs. You, you kind of do a little, I use a sticky note and we all just rap about it in the fly shop. And then we pick the youngest, the youngest person working and tell them to go do the sign. And then oh. <laughs> we, we stand, stand at the window at the fly shop and critique their spacing. Yeah. And that's how the torch passed because Rusty used to do that to me. That's just the way it is. <laughs> there you go. So the sign and, and what's on the sign today if you go go out there? You know, what's funny is I... I guess it's it's over the holiday season. so I can't right remember, now. but I know yeah. it's about streamer fishing. <laughs> yeah, about streamers. Okay, yeah. So, And and Rusty, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, Rusty Gates, right? I mean, he yep. was the guy who founded this. What, maybe let's hear about that a little bit. I, I would love to, you know, somebody you never had on the podcast, but would love to hear about him. I know I've heard some stories. What, what is it about him that you kind of remember most or that how he influenced you? Well, Gates has always been kind of a, a quiet fly shop. Um, and even more so uh, back in the nineties the when, when my dad, my dad, my parents bought a place up here, just up the river, a little cabin. And my dad was driving around and he goes, I think there's a fly shop just down the river at Stefan bridge. And so we went and checked it out. Cause there wasn't really a sign that said, Hey, we're open. We're selling stuff. It's just a sign that says Gates lodge. You don't know what it is. We pulled, we pulled in there and, um, I was going to get some fly tying materials and, and Rusty was there and, and, uh, I pretty much left with my first, uh, fly fish, you know, fly tying order that day. And, and so I've worked here ever since, but Rusty had, he was a pretty quiet guy, strong defender of the river's health. Um, not universally loved locally, but, but pretty, pretty loved nationally. He was uh fly around real angler of the year. And, um, you know, great fisherman fish with him, not as much as you might suspect, but, but enough to know that he, you know, he, he was, uh, he was a real deal, uh, incredible commercial fly tire, but he had, he had sort of an aura about him 
And and part of that was he wasn't afraid to tell you exactly what he thought, especially if he was in a bad mood. So working for him, you know, you had to have a little bit of patience with him and what, what he was going through. I mean, he was famous. Um, he wouldn't really delegate. So he he did all the shop. He He handled most of the big sales. And then when he left work, he was at work every single day. Every day, I think he worked 363 days a year, probably. Wow! And um, it always started at 6:30 in the morning. And when he left work, he was the president of Anglers at the Asable, which is this hugely successful conservation group up here. And uh, the dude didn't sleep a lot, you know. I right. mean, he, and his wife Julie, who was kind of my up north mom, when I my parents would let me come up here and work, um, even when I was a teenager, sort of under their supervision. And in Julie was the same way. She ran the restaurant and she was there just every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So wow. that that's kind of the roots of the lodge as I know it. And then Rusty's dad, Rusty's mom and dad, you know, ran it before him. So it's kind of passed on in that way. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So they were, you know, workaholics basically. I mean, worked all day. How old was uh, Rusty when he passed away? So Rusty and Julie both passed away at 54. And Rusty's dad actually passed away at 54. So these are things, you know, selfishly, I'm paying attention to at 44. And I I do try to delegate more um, and carve out more time uh, than they did. It's one of those things that you appreciate. And you also say, I really don't want that to happen to me. It's only fly fishing. (laughs) I know. I know. That is one of those things that is a hard thing because you love it so much. You know, you feel like you want to. Yeah, it's it's your thing, and, and but yeah, it makes you wonder like how much does that the stress you're not thinking about maybe you know cause that an early an early uh, kind of retirement essentially. Yeah, well, but, our busiest uh, month is June, and and June's really famous because that's we get bigger mayflies and 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 they're more consistent than in May, and the fishing's at night, and and so I love fishing that too. I, I love June. I just don't love it the same way I love May. But what I notice now that I have one of these heart monitors on my watch is just how terrible June is for my health. Like if we were June busy and the fishing was June good for like six months, I would be in trouble already. I think it's just, it's incredible. Like my resting heart rate skyrockets and my sleep quality goes terrible. I mean, cause you're fishing a lot of times you're dry fly fishing until midnight, one in the morning during the hex hatch, you wake up and, and it's also your busiest time. And, you know, I'm not yet at the point where I'll sacrifice the fishing for my health. Um, so I, I do both. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, you do both. Exactly. You have a busy time and that is the time. So May, June, like what, what are the peak? Is that is that kind of the peak time there? June's the peak. It's all, It's almost a perfect high point. It's the longest nights of the year. It's your biggest mayfly. It's your biggest fish. It's the by far the most people fishing. And then it's falling action after that. And July is the most underrated month of the year because all you're doing is just stepping back from June. But for whatever reason, July has been written off as not that good, but it's really great. And, and it kind of falls off like that. So it's it's kind of a triangle of a season. If you start in April and go to, you know, say October 1, and the point of it's right there, June 15th to June 30th for uh, the hex hatch. For the hex hatch. And the hex hatch, again, so that's a... A famous, I'm not sure if everybody has the hex hatch, but that's a 
basically a giant, the hexagena, right? Is that, is yeah. that the species or the, yep. the, the, the fly? Yeah. And then it's a night, right? So there, so talk about that. Yeah. Just, I mean, describe that hex hatch. It sounds kind of crazy, but they start hatching after it gets dark. Yeah. So it starts with a spinner fall, typically anywhere from 1015 to midnight, depending on how hot it is. That's completely temperature related. Okay. And how does that, uh, how does that on the spinner fall, maybe just describe that. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, but maybe describe first, like what is a spinner fall and then talk yeah. about how, how that hexagena, what, what that means in, a, in application to catching fish. So typically what the hex does is it hatches out of the muck, um, on the sides of the river and it goes up into the trees. It molts. It's usually two days. Sometimes it's one day. Usually it's two days. And then, it's in its its mating form at that point, and it flies up way up into the sky, and the male and the females mate. And a lot of that, unlike other mayflies, which are are not able to fly as far, you don't get to see that part. You see the nighthawks swooping around, and you know something's happening up there. Then the egg-laden females descend, and they fly up the river because they have to fly upstream. So they drop their eggs, and the eggs drift back down roughly to where they hatched. Otherwise. There wouldn't be any mayflies left in rivers. They just slowly. Oh wow! The entire population would drift down down river. That's great. So they know to go upstream and let their at a certain point and then drop it so they get to the same place where they hatched. Right, right. Wow. So so we don't have a, a slow downstream migration. Um, so the, the the upstream march of the hex is really one of the the great events in nature. I mean, you wouldn't have to be a fly fisher, and you can see this like even on the Ohio River, Mississippi River. Uh, they just, they just fly. You can hear them. It's definitely a locust type biblical event. If it's heavy, they drop on the water and the eggs fall out and the males are still kind of flying around looking for mates and they'll just slowly die along the way. And it's big fish fishing at night. So you're, you're fishing to the sound and that just the spinner fall. If it's heavy enough, you can be fishing all night and lots, hundreds and hundreds of people do. They'll fish almost till dawn. And between all that, while that's happening, the hex are slowly starting to hatch out of the muck on the sides of the river. So you really can have a pretty big, wild, all-night adventure up here if you want that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, people start looking really weird around the lodge two weeks oh, yeah. into that. Because we'll have people stay for the whole two weeks. Oh, wow. It's, it's, it's a thing. We call it getting shipwrecked. You know, everyone right. looks a little shipwrecked. Yep. And and then what is the next day? So the morning, I can imagine, you know, it's great because you have the lodge there, you have some good food, but like, are you, should you be getting up early to fit? Is fishing good early in the morning as well? No, we, we skip that. We, we basically, the lodge doesn't get busy. The first like four or five hours, we're just sitting there and then it slowly starts to get busy with people coming in with their, you know, they're showing us pictures. My phone's dinging all the time that time of year with pictures. People send me pictures of their fish. And um, we just, we just watch the, the river wake up or the, the river people wake up. And then it's about seven hours of tire kicking. We've had people do impromptu casting competitions in the yard. Um, one year, this was right before COVID, the river's gotten a lot busier in June than it used to be. And we had, we had a bunch of people in boats show up and park in our yard and they did like a, um, it was basically a party. I didn't know it was going to happen, but they were like tailgating and, and cooking food. And there might've been oh, wow. eight, 10 boats and about, you know, what is that? About 30 people. 
out there. I was like, well, what are they doing? <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so this is in this. So yeah, maybe describe that on the the river itself. When you're there, is this something where it's kind of a, a walk and wade and there's a boat uh, opportunity or, or what's that look like? Yeah, there's lots of people in boats, people in boats. There's been a lot more boats on the river in the last decade than ever before. I mean, the last decade's probably been as many boats as the previous 50 years, um, at least. And so it's changed how we approach the river. I pretty much stay out of a boat during Hex and Walk and Wade because I can have my spot, fish my spot, and then leave and get home at a reasonable hour. The, the boat almost always adds an hour, especially if there's a backup at the launch. So it's, it's not like an experience. The experience is cool. It's not something that we go out of our way to promote. I mean, I think it's kind of at a saturation point on our river. And some would say, I think rightly that for three or four of those days, it's, it's probably beyond a saturation point. Right. And it's okay with me. It lasts two weeks. You know, it's one of those things you're, you're happy to see it come and you, and you love to see it go. <laughs> and then, I mean, right around June 28th, you just flick a switch and the river's back to normal. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. So in, during that peak time, is there, I mean, we have this, you know, out west as well, all over the place, well, really all over the country. But you see these places where there's kind of limited entry restrictions. Has, has there been talk of that? Is there any of that? Do you think it needs that in that peak time to maybe control how many boats are on the river? I would say... If it lasted an extra week or two, if we get to that point, then maybe. But I can't tell how much of my feelings are a reaction to the COVID boom, which was huge here and crazy. And I probably couldn't have survived another three years of it. So I think it, it, you know, it kind of remains to be seen. Like this past year, May was nice and quiet. It was, it was good enough for business. It felt like it should feel. Like you, you, you know, you have to try to do good business. Um, but when you went fishing, you had a place to fish. That's kind of how I think a fly shop should feel. And then for two weeks last year, it was extremely busy. And I, and you know, we're all, all the guides and everybody's talking about how we need to limit boat launch access, like, like you're suggesting. And then right when you start to feel that conviction, they're all gone again. And you say, well, I don't know. Maybe it's just 10 days that you are busy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. You hate to, you hate to go down that route, right? Because it, then it restricts certain things you can do. And I think in some places it works great. Yeah. You know, in fact, you know, it makes the experience better. I, I know like on our home water, it was a big, when many years ago when they started doing it, I think it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago, they were like, okay, we're going to be starting this limited thing. And at the time it was like, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. We can't go fishing whenever we want. But as it turns out, there's ways to get out there, you know, and, and the experience is better because now yeah. there's a limited number of people, you know, it's that whole thing. So that's the idea, you know, obviously, but no, it sounds like you guys are in this really amazing place. So what is, so back to Rusty here, he, you know, it sounds like he rubbed, you know, the people the wrong way, maybe locally and stuff and, and all of that, but he sounds like he did a good job at promoting this area. I'm still trying to get to that thing, like thinking the Asabo versus say another river in Michigan, you know, there must be other rivers that have brown trout that are good, but do you think Asabo is partly Rusty's ability of promotion of how he did it? Or do you think literally without Rusty, this place would have become the name it is? The river has been famous for a long time and, and Rusty was, he was a good promoter, but I wouldn't say that was like 
he wasn't like traveling around doing it and there wasn't social media at the time. Uh, a lot's happened on this river. Um, and it's kind of, the river has a couple things going for it. It has three branches, all of which are weightable. So right there, that, that helps a ton. But I mean, Selective Trout was, you know, the book was born on this river. Um, and, and in fact, I talked to Doug Swisher about it a couple years ago. And he told me that he was fishing with Joe Brooks. So two legends go fishing about four miles upstream of the lodge. And Doug outfished Joe. This is as the story goes. And Joe was so excited that that they went to a payphone that was used to be at the corner about two miles from the lodge. And Joe Joe Brooks called his publisher in New York and said, have I got a book for you? And that book <laughs> became Selective Trout. Oh, wow. So I think it extends. the ri- This river's been loved to death and, and kind of following up on the previous conversation. This river's been loved to death like three times. I mean, it was a great place to float a log back in the logging days. Right. And and that killed it, you know. And yep. and, um, and we had... Uh, the Clean Water Act, because we used to pump sewage down the river, um, which made it rich. I mean, the river used to have more trout when they did that, but that's a fine line. Um, as the river warms up like it has now, that that probably would have been a major problem. And now we have, you know, traffic again from recreational anglers that we're talking about limiting access to the boat ramps. So I think it's always been busy. I do think it was there was more to promote when Rusty was coming up because a lot of people hadn't discovered some of the other opportunities here and that he really did do a good job of, of, you know, turning people towards, you know, um, catching big fish at night isn't for everyone. Some people really love fishing trichos and, and letting them know that that's great. We have great trico fishing on the Asable. Come do that. You know, I, he was really good at that part. And I think that's an important part. Yeah, no, that is. No, that's, that's a good clarification. And, and I love uh, the Selective Trial. Yeah, I mean, that book has come up many, many times on the podcast. It's a famous book and, and too famous. So I, I totally forgot about that, that that was the river. So these guys basically, probably a lot of the bugs, hatches they talked about were from that river. Oh, yeah. Um, which is which is amazing. So let's, you know, as far as the river, going back to that. So talking about May, June, Let's just take it back to that hexagena hatch. So when you're there, if somebody's there in, like you said, what would be the peak time if you had to pick one time to think? Or does it vary? Does that hatch timing vary a lot throughout the year? Or not throughout the year, but throughout the June, yeah, period. That that hatch is pretty easy. I mean, it's typically June 15th to July 4th. So sometime in there. <laughs> yep, gotcha. So June 15th to July 4th. So you got this period where you could go catch fish in the evening. And so I'm assuming there is no, there's no regulations really in, is it Michigan or just in general about fishing at night? Uh, Michigan's a night fishing state. I, I don't know of any, any regulation it without, you know, throughout the state that keeps you inside. So, yeah. So night fishing is great. So, and we, and again, it's the, the brown trout. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but never in specifically in your area. Um, but when you go out at night, maybe just paint that picture. So these, these bugs, the spinner fall is beginning, or it's going on and, and describe the spinner fall again. So that where you're hitting those fish and then maybe talk a little about what flies you're using, how you set up for that hatch. Um, for the hex, it's, it's, it's really pretty simple. I mean, the perfect hex hatch season for me, I'll, I'll actually just fish the same fly. I, <laughs> I, um, it's, um, you find your favorite fly and you find a spot that you want to sit. So let's, pre- let's presume you're waiting. And, and you do have to kind of lay claim to it. So there's a little bit of a, 
you know, the Alaskan bear on the salmon spot, you know? (laughs) How do you do that? Because I know this is interesting. I've had the same thing. How do you lay claim to your spot so people know you're there? Here's how I do it, but it's a little different how I do it versus if I was here fishing for a week. If I was fishing for a week, I'd go down, find a nice place, have a snack, read a book, and make sure I had my spot. But I wouldn't throw any kind of fit. I'm I'm pretty good at, at never getting into any kind of conflict on the river. And I, I can only assume some people really like to do it because I hear about it and I go, how? You know, it's not like I'm fishing private land. If I see someone, I go the other way. I typically don't go to the river at 7 p.m. to sit there for three hours waiting. I typically will go at about eight or nine and and just drive through and see if I can find a spot because I know a couple things. One thing is, is that brown trout move after dark. So that shallow riffle that no one's sitting at could be full of big fish, especially if it's been hot out for a couple days and the fish want some oxygen while they're feasting on hex. So there's no silver bullet as far as a spot. Um, there's some really good spots that are consistent, you know, consistent big fish dry fly spots. But in general, I don't stress about that. I don't say, okay, this night's ruined because I didn't get my spot. I like to sneak in. And then once the lights go out and the fish are rising, what you need as an angler condenses. You don't need 400 yards of river if you got three big fish rising in front of you. And so everyone tends to chill out. This is, again, in the waiting water. The boat water is a little different. So how we handle it if we're in a boat is we'll see everyone, most people, 90% of people use a little red light on their boat that they keep on the back. And they'll be at anchor fishing to a fish. And if you're in a boat that's moving, you approach the red light, you stop and you ask them which side you know to pass on, river left, river right. Some people say north, south. And then you try to get around them. And, and that's why I don't, you know, I, when I when I guided, that was life. Um, but now that I don't guide, I rarely go out there because I just get so tired of going between the boats when I can just go wade fish. Yeah, right. Because yeah. it's busy during that time. So, But that's how I set up for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you set up for it. So if you, and if you're in a, no, I love that 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 tip. Basically, you don't have to get out there way early to hold your spot. You can find whatever's open and then get in that spot. And then and then once you're there, so what is the fly? So as far as the because the mayfly, the hexagena is how big is that bug for those that haven't seen it? It's, I mean, it's a, we're using a size two X long, size six. Yeah, size six. Um, yeah, and and the the big trick if if I had one trick for people is is I'm usually fishing a size eight. I I do better with the smaller hex. You, you size it down one. And, you know, I think that's a general rule of thumb is, is if the bugs are hatching, even if it's Hendrickson times and the fish are seeing a size 14 through a size 18, be that a black cat, a mahogany or a Hendrickson, don't fish a size 12 thinking you're going to get their attention because everything they're eating is between a 14 and an 18. And it's the same with hex. The hex just, the fish just got done with brown drakes and isonychia. So we've already had two great weeks of fishing and fish eating size 10s and 12s. I don't think it it pays to go out there and fish a size two when the fish are, they feel comfortable eating a size six through a 10, you know, stay in, stay in that size range. Gotcha. So yeah, no, that's a great point. So basically stay down. Don't be afraid to go a little bit smaller than what you think. 
oh yeah that could, that could help you okay and then when you're on the water you say let's say you found a fish you you had that tip there about how to find that big fish you see it slurping um and then how do you present that fly typically does it i guess it depends on where you are in the stream but is this something where if you can cast kind of right right above it that's the spot or are you, how close are you getting it to that fish the the traditional way to fish it, you can get pretty close to them because it's at night. It, by that time, you're basically fishing by sound. And as much of a challenge as it is for you, it, it's, you know, it's a similar challenge for the trout. I mean, they're, they're not the same, you know, wary predator they are during the day. They're feeding and a feeding fish is less spooky than a fish that's kind of feeding. Um, I'll get pretty close, maybe two rod lengths away. Typically you get a little bit upstream of them and you cast basically just across with a little bit of a reach cast and drifted over them. And you just keep doing that, trying to time the rise. The The other trick I'll do a lot, and this is for all my dry fly fishing, and it'll sound funny that this is a trick because it's, it's actually how everyone else in the country does is I'll get below the fish and cast back upstream. I notice when you get below fish in the river, you can see the rise form a lot better. And then I can, with hex, because they're flies so big, I can see my fly land and I say, okay, in that little bit of glare, this whole thing that I couldn't see from across, I can now see perfectly. So if if I can get behind them, that's how I do it. Gotcha. Okay. And then you must have a good night is the moon is like a full moon. Is that a real good night out there? Or does it no, that's, or? it spooks the fish the same okay, as uh, too much. Yeah. It's like, you, yeah, somehow you want it dark. It's, it's You want it's, it dark, but you can't see yeah, dark yeah. enough. And, and then, yeah, I, I'm assuming you're not using lights or anything like that. To, as, uh, as little light as possible. So you can yeah. get away with more than people think, but in general, you know, red light, little light as possible. And, um, and and what we're describing it it happens um really it can that night fishing thing can happen we've had hendrickson fishing go till an hour after dark the hendrickson spinners the brown drakes do the same thing the iso spinners the sulfurs for sure so night fishing and then we fish you know we swing mice all the rest of the summer so night fishing's just in our culture it's it's in our culture so we you know to to i guess i mean coming from ohio i have a good perspective on it um it's, it feels natural now, but I remember the first time I was, I hit a hex hatch. I was with my dad and it, it, it was so crazy. Like there were fish rising. I couldn't tell where they were. And, and it was total sensory overload. Total, I mean, total sensory overload. And, <laughs> and, you know, you're just, you're just hearing all sorts of things. You don't, you know, was that a fish? And you're just casting blindly. And, and, but, you know, you get just like anything, you get a little better at it and you learn to trust your instinct. It's amazing what people have in them as far as, you know, getting distance right and stuff. I mean, the same thing that lets you shoot a basketball, you just kind of. Yeah, you just know it. You, yeah, just know it. Don't overthink it. That's a great tip. I, well, and it is, you know, again, part of it, like Michael Jordan, you know, the practice, right, or whatever. He missed so many uh, shots, right? He's he's won plenty of championships, but he's, he's right. missed 5,000 5, free throw or whatever it is. But. <laughs> The point is, is that, man, I do that too. I'm out there just shooting now and it's like, wow, it's kind of amazing to be able to shoot a three-pointer mm-hmm. and swish it and swish it through the hoop. I mean, sometimes, you know, like most of the time it bricks, but those right. ones that make it, you're just like, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And fly casting's the same way. You make that cast sometimes, you're like, oh my God, how did I make that perfect cast? And then yeah. a, fit, a giant brown trout takes and you're like, wow, right? That's That's the moment. Knowing when to be analytical and knowing when to go by feel is like one of the great mysteries I see people struggle with in fly fishing. Yeah. I mean, that's right. be, you know, you try to measure out your line 
and and good luck doing that. I mean, I mean, that's you just kind of got to feel it, you know. You got to feel the whole thing, right? Feel it. That's the uh, yeah. So there's uh, it's pretty awesome because right? I think that like goes a long ways for people to realize. Yeah, you can't like analyze all this stuff. Some of it's just getting out on the water and right observing and checking out what's going on and hanging out, just hanging, right? Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. A quick break for a word from our sponsor. Smitty's Fly Box delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty subscription fly box. If you need a unique fly selection for a new water you're fishing, or if you want to get started fly tying the easy way, Smitty's has you covered. They'll find out where you're fishing and supply you with a custom fly assortment. And Smitty's has been producing high quality flies and materials for over 30 years, and you may not realize it, but Smitty's is connected to Round Rocks, who is the sole supporter to Sportsman's Warehouse and has tied and supplied millions of flies over the years i was at sportsman's this week and picked up a couple a dozen flies some chubby small and large dry flies some terrestrial patterns the quality was exceptional that's one of my struggles is the dry flies so i love looking at these little guys from small little tiny flies that i can barely see with my eyesight's the big one and these are the same people who are delivering and tying these flies to your door with smitty's fly box it's a great time right now to get stocked up for the season. You can head over to smittysflybox.com right now to take a look at their selection of flies and monthly boxes right now. Let Smitty's take the guesswork out of choosing fly materials and patterns right now. This is also an easy way to support this podcast and a small business who has been producing high quality flies for many years. Check them out right now. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. Okay, back to the show. Well, a couple of things. I want to keep on this track a little bit of some of the opportunities because there's so much here. We won't get into it all today, but also on the lodge, I want to hear that story. So, you know, how, how did that come to you? It sounds like you came up there, your parents had this cabin, you're in the community. When did this, be, for you, become a, uh, like you realize, wow, I have a chance to buy this place? Well, it was it was kind of from tragedy, really. I was I was guiding on the river. We Kate and I, we my wife and I, my wife Katie and I, we, we, we left the country for two years. Um, I was working in the fly shop when we left as we went through college. When we graduated college, we went, we went overseas, came back in like 20, 2004. And I started guiding right away and was working for Rusty and everything was good. Um, you know, you're kind of starting to get into adulthood. We're thinking about kids and all that. And, um, Rusty got sick. Uh, he got lung cancer and, and, um, so that's sort of how it happened. Like I came back and ran the lodge or tried to run the lodge. Rusty was sick, but he, <laughs> you know, he's still there working every day. He worked every day. Um, yeah. And that, that summer in 2019, we worked together, but he, he was a very strong person and very realistic. And so he'd started trying to figure out how I could buy the lodge. And, and so he passed away in, um, in uh, two, I said 19, I'm sorry, 2009. And I ran Julie, um, his wife and I ran the lodge in 2010. And that was obviously, a, I mean, these are traumatic events. And Julie and I worked out the rest of the agreement for me to buy the lodge. And it's, it's really, you know, Rusty saw it coming, but it, but it was Julie that worked so hard to make it happen um, for me and, and, um, 
I'm very grateful. Katie and I are both very grateful for that. And all of a sudden, um, 2011, we were, we were just, you know, we were just go. I mean, if, if when you have kids, it's the same way. You, yeah. You, you, you come home <laughs> with this baby and you shut the door and you sit down with this baby and you go, Holy crap. God. We got this baby. And, and that's what it, it's exactly like that with the lodge. It was, yeah. it, it, what's funny is we also had just had a baby. So right. that all happened at once. Um, wow. But, I love that analogy, the the baby in the business, because you know a lot of you always think of that, like, oh my god, this business is like your little baby, you know, and it, it is right. It can go, it can go south and be amazing one minute, and the next minute, the thing is screaming at the top of its lungs, and you're like, you know, freaking out and trying to keep things calm, and then, <laughs> and the next minute, it's great again. You're like, wow, yep. that's a baby in a business. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And 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 that's what it was. That's what it was like. And and. When you when you move into a business that's already busy, there's good parts about that and there's bad parts about it. And obviously, the good parts outweigh the bad parts. But the one thing I learned is when you have a successful business, you think you're going to change some things. You know, growing up working here, I had all these things. I was like, man, I, why doesn't Rusty do this? Why doesn't sure. Julie do that? Yeah. Well, you'll find out once you have the business. <laughs> yeah. Know, it's it's um, not as easy. It's not as easy, and the way they did it was for a reason. Uh, so, but, but thankfully, you know, we, ha we have this incredible river community that Rusty had helped build, but, but they supported us the whole way, you know, and that river community extends throughout the country, but th these weren't people that I didn't know. And, um, they love the lodge. So they, they kept it going. Even when we struggled for a couple of years, they kept it going. Sure. Sure. What well, is maybe describe that lodge a little bit because you have you have the shop, you've got the river, you've got the guiding. What is the lodge like? Maybe if somebody if we were coming there and that hitting the hex hatch and you know that June period, and we were coming up there the first day driving in, what, what would we see there? Paint that picture. Well, I mean, the lodge is tastefully outdated, and I think that's why people like it. Um, you know, I mean, it's still a '70s fish camp. I Rusty always used to call it fish camp. Uh, just so people didn't get their hopes up too high, sure. you know. I mean, it's a <laughs> right. It's a strip of seventeen rooms along the river. Uh, we have a great restaurant, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day uh, during the during you know in the summer, spring, summer, fall. Uh, it's attached to a little fly shop that we still try to do it as close to how Rusty did it as possible, while you know understanding that times have changed. And, uh, you know, we run six guides out of here and then we have a full-time instructor and a couple part-time guides who fill in if, you know, a guide has, needs a day off or something like that. So it all works together in the way that I think it started with, with, you know, Rusty's dad. I mean, that, that vision of what it can be, I think is, is pretty well realized by, uh, by Rusty and Julie. And we just kind of kept it, kept it going and, you know, did a couple you know, new things you got to do, like an online store and sure. things like that. But, you know. Yeah, but that's it. What is the, and this is cool because I think that, um, I mean, it just, like all these places, we have lots of people that listen or just kind of think like, where's the next place I need to go? And I mean, many people have heard about this, but I can imagine if we were doing the same thing, a family trip, like your family back in the day, I love that, you know, 49 states. I mean, that would be something awesome for us. Like just cruise across, you know, kind of the mm -hmm. north northern part of the country, hit through a few states and then swing up into Michigan. It is a little bit of a swing because you kind of have to drive yourself up north, right? And come back yeah. down because Michigan's surrounded by water. 
but it is it is a pretty amazing spot. And then the fish you said. So w- what is like the brown trout? You know, size wise, what is a a big brown trout in the Osabo? Like, uh, what's a what's a trophy? What's a big thing? And then what's like kind of an average brown? So it depends completely on what you want it to be. And I think that's important. I always tell people, pretend that you don't have a camera. What kind of fishing do you enjoy? I, I, when I hunt those big fish in May, I would hunt that same experience with their, whether they were 10 inches or 20 inches. I, I really that. would. I um, that. And, and there's the, the way social media, I'm not a social media guy, but the way social media works is, is you end up fishing in a way that you might not actually enjoy as much as you think. You enjoy having, you enjoy having the picture. And so, so you enjoy the picture part of it, but I tell people fish is if you don't have a camera and then we'll take the context of it because the ensemble is all about context and we'll break it down. I'll tell you what a good fish is. So if you go out fishing in the middle of a July day and it's, it's, it's sunny out and you catch a 12 inch brown trout, you've done great. And, and I mean that like you, that took more skill than any 20 inch brown during hex ever will. If you go fishing during the Hendrickson's, the hatch, which is at, say, 2 o'clock May 2nd, you know, it's not unreasonable to hope for a fish, a couple fish bigger than 12 inches to be rising, have a shot at them. So average size is really dependent. What people typically think of the ensemble, those what I'll give you, which is we have a whole bunch of juvenile trout in this river because it's a wild fishery. So 4 to 10 inch fish are what we're fishing for during the day in the summer. That's it, no matter what you see. And, and I'm talking about the upper river. The lower river's got a little different thing because there's less fish, but but the average size is larger. And are you guys in the, are you in, is the lodge in the upper river? We're in the upper river. So we're the nursery yeah. section. What we are is a big nursery section for fish to come spawn. They leave their babies behind. Some of the babies stay here. The rest, you know, some out migrate. But, you know, just, just out this river, outside the window i'm looking at the river right now anything can happen so the the the, a good fish is whatever surprises you because whatever surprises you will look huge it's right (laughs) that could be a 12 a 12 inch brown july will look big if you've been catching a bunch of five six inches what people typically go for on this river at night is they're hoping to catch a brown over 18 or a brookie a brook trout over 10. Our brook trout have gotten smaller, noticeably smaller in the last 20 years. And then our rainbow population's increasing, which is probably related, I think, to that brook trout thing. And so, the you know, we do get some nice rainbows in here. And so typically downriver, that would be, you know, an 18-inch class fish. But But we try not to push that. We used to have a trophy log on the wall in the shop, and we got rid of that about 10 years ago, kind of when social media was taking over and you're seeing this huge I know. change in, in, in how people fished and, and how people related to fishing. Yeah. I love that. Now that's such a great point. I think that quote you had fish as, as if you don't, uh, you know, you don't have a camera or whatever in your, cause it, you see that too. And you see it on social media where somebody's got their camera propped up and they're trying to get a perfect shot and it's real obvious mm-hmm. in a video or something, but yeah, you see that too, because if your camera's there, you're always thinking, Oh man, where am I going to get my thing? It just changes your whole experience. As opposed to like, if there's no camera, you're just like in the river. And you're like not thinking about that. And you're just thinking about you and the fish or, you know, the environment. That's such an awesome point. I love that. Right. I mean, if, if you have five 12-inch fish rising 
and no 20 inch fish rising and you don't have a camera instead of going to search for those you know that 120 inch fish you're probably going to take a cast at those five right. and that's going to be your night and that's great i love i love a night like that yeah for sure cool so so that's it so in in brown trout like you said rainbows brookies and then let's just take us through the year so we got kind of in the june july and then you all the way through october what happens kind of october and the season are you guys still getting hatches throughout the whole summer into the fall yeah we get um september we get uh flying ants which is our best terrestrial we're we're like a sand soil everywhere around our rivers sand soil so we get these huge ant mounds and if the if it we get a little humidity in the air and it's a little warmer than average. We'll get flying ants um, from four to seven p.m., and that's great fishing. It's great dry fly fishing, and of course, then the fish are always looking for ants, and that can carry right on through the first week of October. It mixes with um, blueing olives. We get white flies, the Efron Lucon, the white fly hatch downstream below Mayo Dam. So we have a couple. We have trout fishing down about thirty, you know, thirty forty miles below us. That whole 30 miles is trout water. And so, you know, you got a lot to chase then. We get bluing olives in the afternoon and we have good streamer fishing. Pre-spawn streamer fishing is really good. Um, and that lasts till about October 15th. And then the trout start jumping on beds and and most of the lodge guests are bird hunters by then. So the season's kind of wrap, wrapping up at that point. You got bird hunting. You got bird mm -hmm. hunting too. So do you guys, ha do you have guys staying there during the the fall winter bird hunting out of your lodge. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. At least half our half our guests are bird hunters. We have good grouse, good grouse hunting. Oh, awesome! This is sweet. Okay, so this is part a big part of it. Um, well, let's take it back just real quick on the river. I want to talk about just the bigger picture so we can see that real quick. I mean, it kind of goes. I guess it starts. It's a tailwater. I'm assuming at is it Mayo Mayo Dam. It's a top flow, so it's a tailwater, but it's not the good kind of tailwater. So oh, gotcha. But it's an incredibly rich stretch of river. It gets a little warm in the summer, but the fish have... So it used to be assumed, this is kind of a neat story, and it's it's a late-breaking story, but it was assumed that the trout fishery down there was a stocked fishery. So below Mayo Dam, the state stocks browns and rainbows. And um, the DNR did a study, and they did a great job of reaching out to interest groups like Anglers of Sable and Mason Griffith Trout Unlimited and... and um, others and 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 we did a study we we got to help with the tagging and 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 the fin clipping to find out what the fish were and it turns out a significant portion of the brown trout are actually wild especially the big browns and so they're actually going to discontinue brown trout stocking because it's such a good wild trout fishery it was it's one of those things we assumed was happening wasn't the case the brown trout had found a way and all those big trophy fish we were catching down there that river down there has the fastest growth rates in Michigan. I believe I have that right. Those were all wild trout all along and they looked like it, you know, it just, we were told that they were stocked, but, um, so it's pretty cool. It's, it's going to be neat to watch that, that fishery develop down there. For sure. Gosh. So, so that's in, there's a little town of Mayo. So it kind of comes out of the lake, it pours over the dam and then you've got, how many miles is it from where it pours over the dam to your lodge? Uh, it's about 30. It's about 30 yeah, miles. About 30. Drive. Yeah. So you got 30 miles of essentially like river, similar river types that people can fish and drive up and down. Or That one, yeah, that down there's boat water. We call that the middle river. And and that's really famous during the hex and it's good streamer water and it's good for everything, really. It's nice water. But but 
that's where we have a lot of the boat traffic. And, and for a lot of people, it's funny with, with the Asable, some people, they think of the Asable, they think of the North Branch, or they think of the South Branch, or they think of that Middle River, or they think of the river below Mayo. So everyone has a different picture of what the Asable is. Oh, um, right. And that makes it really cool and interesting. That is cool. Yeah, because you have the... So you basically have the main river, which is a beautiful big river that people are floating. But then you have something like the North Branch that you can go up and wade fish. And are people also wading, walking and wading the main river? Oh, yeah. 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 So the whole thing. So you got tons of water, 30 miles, plus you got these branches coming in, mm-hmm. which add a lot. And then, okay, good. So it's painful. And then where does it flow as it flows kind of from the... I guess it's flowing from the east to the west. Where does it flow into eventually? Which way is it going? What's it going into? So we, we go into Lake Huron. So we're flowing east. And the Manistee, which is which is an incredible river, starts. they start five miles apart. The Asable and the Manistee, there's a ridge between them. The Manistee turns and flows west into Lake Michigan. Gotcha. So that's, a. I mean, we're 15 minutes away from the Manistee, which is this whole other great trout river. Yeah. That's similar you could tell that they're related you know they're sister rivers but they're very different as they develop their own character the manistee's colder deeper and slower oh, okay yeah and, and the manistee and rise again where is the manistee from your lodge it's uh 15 minutes west oh just west yeah and mm-hmm. then it and then it flows into lake into lake michigan yep gotcha oh right 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 this is really cool and yeah of course the manistee is a famous uh I'm sure it has trout, but also steelhead, right? It's a, it's a famous steelhead river. Yeah, we're, we're, it's a great trout river, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the equal to the Asable um, up here. And then, you know, down two dams, it's a, you know, world famous steelhead river. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And then, uh, so you got that. And then the and the uh, Asable doesn't have steelhead, or is it because of the dams that doesn't have steelhead? We we have we have steelhead um, and Atlantic salmon fishing actually below the bottommost dam, which it, but that's a ways away from us. Now they're gonna they're they're talking about taking all the dams out because they're not making any money um, or producing all that much electricity. But that's that's a that issue is being debated heavily because there's all these somewhat popular lakes that the dams make for other recreation and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So you know us. Us fly fishers would argue that if the dams weren't there, more recreation. It would be, it, there'd probably be more recreation, but you know that's not. I, I that doesn't affect me, so I haven't lobbied no. one way or the other. Yeah, your way, your way. I mean, you're from the town of. It looks like it flows in. Is it town? What's the town nearest where the Sable flows into the lake? That's that's down by Tawas over there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's this is uh, and there's there's I mean there's a big is it Footsite Village? There's like a foot, um, yeah Foot Dam. Foot dam. Yeah, foot dam. Foot is probably the first big dam, hydroelectric dam. So you have that, but that's that's like mile. That might be what, like fifty hundred miles away from you. Yeah, it's a ways away. It's a long drive too. I'm, I said I'm in Oscoda. Sorry, um, Oscoda. Yeah, yeah Oscoda. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, I had Tawas Bay on the mind recently for a fishing oh, yeah. adventure. But yeah, <laughs> sure. Okay, good. I just wanted to paint that. So now we see. You know, that really puts it in perspective again, you know, the Asable. It's not just the Asable. You got the Manistee and really all these Michigan. There's a bunch of Michigan rivers that are great. Oh, I mean, we're two out we're two hours from the Pier Marquette. So Yeah, and the Pier Marquette, know, yeah. 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 So if you if you did a trip in I mean, in May, you could hit a few uh, famous rivers, not only the Asable, but uh, I mean, they're all fishing probably. I mean, I'm guessing there's hatches on the Pier Marquette and all those the same similar hatches. Oh, yeah. Mar- Pier Marquette's a great trout stream. 
There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Well, in, anything else before we're going to take it out here in our little rapid fire uh, segment here, but um, anything else you want to highlight as far as the lodge before we jump into and kind of take this out of here? No, I think, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, a couple of items, and this is kind of our three tips segment that, that we do to kind of wrap this up. And you've given us a, a bunch of awesome tips that I want to follow up with. But if you had to say, again, you're back to brown trout on the Asable, you know, somebody's coming there for the first time. What are a couple more tips you would give that person to say, hey, I'm going to have a chance to catch a brown trout. They're sitting there, whether that's the hex or any of the other hatches, what, what would you tell them? Um, the, the, the first thing to do is stay out of the water. Stay out of the water and look. So a little bit of a plan, but a lot of observing. I'm not calculating a plan. I just want to make sure I don't miss anything. Right. Um, yep. so, so stay out of the waters, one. Try to make your first cast count. That's that's definitely two, and um, along that same line, if the if the fish is rising after you make a nice cast, you get a good drift over it. Take a break. There's no need to throw another one. Make sure that fish is still rising. So those are my three tips. That's awesome. No, those are per- those are such good tips because it just reminds you again, high level. Stay out of the water. Like you know, again, like I always think of some of these places, the fish could be like right off the edge of the bank. Right. I mean, they might be, is that, is that oh, the case yeah. there? Or are they mixed? Where, where would you typically find a fish? In a, you? A, a big brown is, is going to be comfortable wherever the feeding is best. So that, that, that's, I mean, I've caught a number of fish on the bank I'm standing on because I waited to cast and I go, what was that? You know, I heard a rise. I wasn't even looking that direction. It turns out the fish is on the inside of the bend, you know, just upstream and, you know, you step in the water and that opportunity has gone. Yeah. God, that's it. So, so you got that. And then you, you mentioned, um, you know, try to make, uh, make the first cast count. I mean, that's a big one because again, you, you might only get one cast. Like if you see this fish, yeah. you're working, you see it working, you know, it's there. Um, if you put, if you, what would be a bad cast you might put on that fish that would scare it? I guess, depending on conditions. Too far. Miss them short. That's what I always say. Miss them short. If, you, if you're three feet short, it's like it never happened. Yeah. If you're two inches long, then you might have an issue, especially okay. if it's rising alongside a stick or cover. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. And then and as far as taking a break, yeah, you might make a cast. It doesn't take, stop and see what happens. Maybe that fish keeps yeah. eating or maybe it doesn't. Yeah, get it get it back to rising. You know, make sure it's rising comfortably. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. So and I'm just going to... A uh, couple, now I want to highlight first the conservation group you mentioned before. Who is that? So we put a link out in the show notes, the the, the group there locally. Anglers of the Asable is perfect. Uh, yeah. Was it WW? Yeah, you got it. Yeah, I got Asableanglers.org. Yeah. Yeah, good, good. We'll, we'll get that in the show notes as well. And, uh, and then, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, patience. Uh, I think we were talking about that before, just about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of rusty or whoever. But I mean, what is that for you? Is patience a big piece of the fly fishing game when you're out there? It sounds like that's kind of what you're describing with these three tips a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's patience. It's patience. It's kind of listening to the right voice inside you. The one that's telling you to, you know, slow down and be a hunter. It's, it's, it, fly fishing is hunting. That's the best part about it. Um, at least for me. So you, you want to be a predator out there. You, you, you don't, you want to do that more than you want to get into quote, like a flow state or some kind of meditation. The meditation is the hunting, right? It's, it's the pursuit. So that, that make yourself a hunter. Yes. I love that. 
no, that's another good reminder. So yeah, the meditation, which is great, being comfortable, but you don't want to be too comfortable that you're you're not seeing everything that's going on. You're not focused because when you say hunting, you know, like for those, I mean, I've done a little bit of hunting, and uh, you're you're fully in a zone. You know, there's no question about it. You know, you don't even hear the gunshot if you're a rifle hunter. Right, right. that's the real yep. unique yep. thing. What would be when you're fishing? That same thing is that kind of what what it is? Like you're hunting, you're in the zone, you're really not. You're so focused, you're not hearing anything else except for this one moment, this one trout. Oh, just watching time pass or realizing how much time passed. Like, you know, I'll be I'll be fishing for my knees for an hour and a half straight on one difficult fish, and and I don't think about anything other than my desire to hook that fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I have that pretty bad as people who fish with me will tell you that I, I'm pretty laid back when it comes to fishing until I'm casting out a big rising trout. And then, and then I'm pretty intense and, and I, I don't remember ever really walking away from a fish, like leaving a fish still rising. Now I'll, I'll stick with that fish until, um, until it quits. Right. That's it. God, this is great. Okay. So, so people are listening now, there's definitely, um, lots of opportunity. I mean, if if they wanted to, if they're looking at next year, when, when would you say, you know, I guess depending on openings and things like that, people are getting there and you could, April could be a a decent time if you want to avoid the crowds or would you say, just try to shoot for May, June? Oh, April's great. Um, April's great. May and June are really booked. They always are, but in July's, July's probably, so growing up, because I came here after school, got out, July is the way I've met the Asabel. And it always amazed me that it's considered underrated. And all these years later, I still think it's so underrated. If I were going to introduce people to this river, especially someone who's newer, newer to fly fishing, come in July. It's like dry fly fishing all day. Oh, there you it's, go. It's great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so July is good. So that keeps you a lot of stuff going on. And then by August, it's starting to get a little bit too hot. Is that kind of the thing? Uh, August is actually a cooler month than July. We struggle more with water temps in July. August is is great and underrated as well. I would just say that those same small fish are a little harder to catch in August. There's there's less bugs hatching, but but there's still plenty of opportunity. Okay. Well, what if I was setting, and we're doing some of this around the country, if we were setting up a trip with some, you know, me, or maybe there's a few of the listeners on here, what would you tell us? When would we want to put this trip together with a small group of people? Um, depending on skill level, I, I would hit, I would probably hit, and also depends on how much, how important dry fly fishing is. You can come, you can come in mid April and hit the first of the dry fly fishing and have all the subsurface fishing you could want and a lot less people. So. That's a good time to hit it. Um, me personally, I'm a May 9th through May 18th person. That's the time between my birthday and my anniversary. And I love the challenge of that time of year. That's my favorite. So that's, there's my, there's my favorite 10 days right there. There you go. May 9th through May 18th. Okay. Yep. Good, good. May. So perfect. And, and then we didn't talk deeply about this, but yeah, you guys have streamers and probably everything else on the river. What is the, the mousing, is that something that's pretty spectacular? Is that kind of, uh, compared to say hex, the hex hatch, is it pretty, uh, exciting, similar excitement? Mousing is long stretches of, of peace interrupted by explosions. I mean, it's, it's not, it's to me, it's okay. I like mousing. I like taking other people mousing, but it doesn't have that same predatory thing for me. So I do it because it's a, it's, it's really fun. It's what I grew up doing. And when I was younger, I did it all the time. I mean, all the time, but it's, to me, it's a lot like streamer fishing. 
on the river. It, it's it's very exciting to do. It's a little more of a social event. As as one of our guides, Matt said, you know, the the thing about dry fly fishing that's cool is you're you're discovering something that's already happening. The fish are feeding and, and you're discovering and hunting that. Oh, right. With streamer fishing, you're making it happen. Yeah. So it's a little bit different mindset and it's not the part I enjoy. So in spring, I'm usually sight nymphing fish in shallow, which is very challenging and, and not very fruitful versus going streamer fishing. If I'm by myself, I'll probably be like sight nymphing. So sight fishing trout with a single nymph on a long leader. Because I'm, because I'm, because I'm tapping into that like hunting pursuit kind of thing, yeah. yeah. As opposed to like a a mouse, is you're just kind of you're not targeting as much as covering water, or, or you you're know. just cover you're covering water. The fun part about mouse fishing is going out with friends and talking or watching your son catch a big trout. It's it's not something that I find like that I need to take serious anymore. Though I did, I mean, keep in mind for like a decade and a half i was out almost every night so oh you were for with with mice oh yeah i'm just i'm just getting old no, man that's all <laughs> yeah no i hear you i hear you well you where you all evolve that's the cool thing about it you know i mean <laughs> you might go through a phase where you're a full-on mouse addict and then all of a sudden you're like wow this dry fly thing is actually pretty cool too i think right. that seems like maybe the asable that's one of the things that's really cool about it is that you do can do everything is that kind of what it is i mean including like probably wet flies or whatever type of fishing could you do it all there Every, everything you've read about in a magazine, you can kind of do on the Asaba. I think that's another reason that it's so famous. And and I think that's important. I, I don't mean to downplay that at all. I mean, you spend all winter reading about different techniques and you want to try them and all this and that. And the Asaba has a place that that technique will probably work and a lot of places where it won't, which is part of the learning process. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Well, this has been awesome, Josh. I think uh, we will probably uh, leave it there. And I know uh, definitely there's lots uh, to dig more into. We'll probably maybe try to get you back on and, and hear more about this down the line. Maybe we even get out to your place there. But um, maybe just give us a heads up. Right now we're getting ready for 2024. What do you have? Any shout out to anything coming in 2024 that's going to be new, different or anything you want to give a heads up on? I know you have some books out there as well. I got nothing new on my end. I, I, I probably echo a lot of uh, fly fishing people in general by saying I'm I'm really happy that the COVID boom is over. I know, and and I'm 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 enjoying rediscovering the river because uh, last year was a lot like what I remember it being like when I fell in love with the river, and and it's it's sobering to see the balance point between needing new anglers, both for business and for protecting the resource. If 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 no one fly fished, we wouldn't have hardly a trout stream left. And I think that's the truth. I think they would have been polluted and overused. So there is a fine line between all this. But but I am enjoying the the more relaxed pace. And that's what I'm looking forward to in 2024. <laughs> Perfect. That's awesome. Well, well said. So we'll send everybody out to uh, gateslodge.com. If they have questions or want to connect and, uh, yeah, yep. until, uh, we meet again, I appreciate all your time today and definitely love hearing the stories and, uh, and would love to get up to your neck of the woods. So, uh, thanks for all your time today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com and please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. 
We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.